Welcome, everybody, to another edition of How to Beat Your Addiction with your host, John Giordano. I am the peanut butter to his jelly. I am Scott Jones, your co-host. And, uh, you I know, like jelly. Yeah. Well, every, <laughs> but I said I'm the peanut butter. So you like yourself. Oh, you're the pe- I like, I see how this all works, John. I have to like myself. Otherwise, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> well, somebody has to, right? <laughs> Paris likes us. So, right? Paris, Paris likes us. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not going to butcher this name because it's. This is a, a really a great person. Our guest today is uh, Paris Prinkevich. How'd I do? You got it. You got it. Paris Prinkevich. I'm going to. I'm going to have that in my dreams tonight. Um, <laughs> she is the uh, creator and host of the Crooked Illness podcast, and the information's on the screen. You can catch her. You can check her out on Instagram. You can find her on Facebook. She's really all over the place, but. Um, but it's a great podcast. John and I have both been guests on that podcast. Yes. And, you know, now it's our turn to uh, to it's tear okay. you apart a little bit. Yes. Now we're switching <laughs> oh, and roles. I, and if anybody likes these podcasts, please put likes and if any comments so we can just keep on expanding this so people can get this very needed information. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, first of all, Paris, uh, you know, we're on Zoom because we're here in Florida and you're out in Arizona. Yes. Yes. Um, that's excellent. You know, nice weather, I hope. <laughs> oh, it is. It's beautiful out here. And, you know, I would really love to get out to Florida sometime because I know some people who recently moved from there and also hear good things about it. So another good, another good spot to be. So Arizona and Florida. So mm-hmm. yeah. rest of the country, not so much right now, John. Cold weather, snow and all sorts of garbage and golf balls. of. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah. But Guys, go ahead. Uh, right, take you know, it away. Paris, what, what I'd like to do is, you know, like, like I said earlier to you before we went on air, my wife is also bipolar disorder. Yes. She also had problems with uh, her medications, and, and she's been in mental institutions and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Thank God today she's fine for many, many years, but there's a lot of struggles. So, and I understand those struggles because I lived through it with her you know, in my own struggles with depression and anxiety and, you know, big, tough karate guy can't get depressed. Baloney. <laughs> um, last time I checked, I was a human, you know. Um, I wish people start calling us earthlings instead of, well, he's black, he's Chinese. No, we're just earthlings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's how I look at life anyway. But, you know, Paris, tell us your story. Tell us, uh, you know, really about the shame and the guilt and the you know, hiding in the closet kind of about, you know, yes. this, this. I would piece. love to. Yeah, I would love to. So I love how you bring up that the the point of your wife also having bipolar disorder. So that is something that I was diagnosed with when I was 19 years old. So prior to that, at 16 years old, I was actually misdiagnosed with depression. So misdiagnosed with depression and I was in therapy. I was in counseling. I was on different kinds of medications. And I also had a lot of unresolved trauma that I did not work through that I did not think I could work through. So when I was 19 years old, I was, like I said, diagnosed bipolar disorder. I was hospitalized and I was just struggling like really, really badly from inside the walls of that hospital. So that was that time in my life then. But then at 23, I graduated from school. And what I did was I actually ended up accepting my very first job at the exact same clinic where I was court ordered for a year to receive services at. So I ended up working there. And what that allowed me to do is to see um, things from two different views, two different angles. So the first view I call the patient perspective, that was when I was 19. And then the other view at 23, I call the employee perspective because I was working within the system and you know working to the best of my ability to assist all the patients I was working with and all things like that. But the biggest thing that I noticed from both of these perspectives was the stigma, the stigma that was present, not only in myself, but also within the other people that I was working with. And the biggest thing that I noticed is the, is how this stigma, at least for me and my experience has held me back from, 
talking about my experiences, from opening up about my diagnosis, my misdiagnosis, my experiences with medications, with therapy, because what I've come to find is through being transparent and through being vulnerable with my story and sharing that with others is I've been able to make such incredible connections like you guys who I both had on my podcast. And I was so excited about that because that is what it's all about. You guys is, you know, just knowing that, you know, it, it is scary to take that risk and, you know, put your story out there and put it all out there for the world. And to do that because you don't know, right. You don't know how people are going to react, respond, what they're going to say, but you know what, if you have a vision and you have a mission behind what you're doing and you're saying, okay, what could this do? What could me telling my story and putting this out there in the world, like, could this do anything for someone? Could this help someone? Could this, you know, and just knowing that it can is enough to like, push me to do that. So that's really when crooked illness was born, which was in the end of January of 2020 is when I started and launched my podcast, which is called crooked illness. And it's all about mental health related topics, also getting into mindset stuff as well. But I basically wanted to start it to bring more of these conversations to the table, to make talking about mental health more normalized and less stigmatized and actually make it more fun and not so dark and negative and sad, like make this more of a fun conversation and talk about the positive sides of this. And because there are a lot of positive sides. So trying to move away from being so problem focused to being more solution focused is like all the mission here. (laughs) Well, you know, um, talking about that, you know, this, like, I I just wrote my book, um, uh, um, which one? I got so many books. I don't even know where I have any books. <laughs> the kid, the kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. It's and I actually, read it and I loved it. And it's my life story. It's talking yes. about putting yourself out there. Uh, listen, it wasn't about the ego. It wasn't about shame or guilt. It was about helping other human beings. And, you know, people helped me when I couldn't help myself. And mental health goes hand in hand with addiction. Most addicts and alcoholics <laughs> have mental health issues. And that's what they're doing. They're medicating it with drugs and alcohol. Now, most people don't understand about bipolar disorder. There's the manic side and there's the depressive side. So there's, there's two different ways of people responding to this dis-ease. I don't call it a disease. I call it a dis-ease. And there are solutions. And, um, you know, if you, like, I know you exercise. I know you eat pretty good. You I saw those videos about all the food. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, you're looking at life uh, differently. My wife started her journey at 18 also and was in the mental institute trying to kill herself a few times. And, you know, actually, I think she was reaching out for help. And people don't realize that desperation of people that have this illness. And they don't think there's any hope. They don't think they can get out of this. They can't get out of bed. They, life is, is dreary. Things you used to like, they don't like anymore. It's really debilitating if you allow it to be. The mind is so powerful that people don't realize, people like yourself, Paris, that are out there saying, hey, look, there is hope. I've been through that. Yes. And when you say you worked on the other end of the stick, so did I. Um, it, <laughs> It's a whole different ball game when you're working in a treatment center or a mental health institution, you know, and yeah. um, I, I think people get numb to this, you know, people that work there and, uh, you know, a lot of them oh, are yeah. caring people and a lot of them, um, some of them look at us as sick people. Mm-hmm. Now, I was also diagnosed bipolar and attention deficit okay. disorder and all of that early on and I was on meds and and then I found a different way how to treat it, and I don't take anything. And that's been for hmm, at least, ooh, about 30 years. Wow. So, that's awesome. So why don't you tell people how you overcame this? Yes. Yeah, so honestly, like, I think you just really said it, like, right there is honestly just having that, like, really strong mindset. And for me back when, you know, when I was 19 and when, even before that, so like 16, 17, 18, 19, like all of those years, 15 years old, all that, you know, I was really, really, really struggling in such a dark place because I did not think that I could talk about, you know, the struggles that I faced with. And at the time that was depression, right? So I was misdiagnosed with depression, but I always felt like there was something else going on. I'm like, because, you know, of course, like in my family, my mom's sister is bipolar. So I, 
I, I didn't know what that was. You know, I had no idea what bipolar disorder was, but every conversation I ever had about it or like every scene I saw of it on like TV or in the movies was always like so negative and like this is a bad thing like you don't want to be bipolar like and of course you don't want to tell anyone like you're bipolar so that's like the idea that started to be planted into my head when I was really young is because you know growing up and being around my mom who you know didn't have a relationship anymore with her sister who was bipolar because she would say you know it's just so difficult to be around her you know she doesn't take medication she's very like out of control all of these things and I was hearing that and it just made me like, it just made me really feel like there's no way I could tell people any of this stuff. So I just need to try to move on with my life. And that was not a good way to go about that. So what I really started to do to overcome this is I started to look at myself. I started to look at myself and say, you know what? Clearly things are not working here. I'm not happy. I wake up every single day, stressed out, overwhelmed, sad, upset, like just in a very bad headspace before my feet even, even hit the ground. My, my thoughts are just racing about how, you know, all these things I have to do that I don't want to, how bad the day is going to be. So I started to say, you know what, how is there a way to change this? There has to be, I'm like, there has to be a solution here because I can't continue living the rest of my life in this mindset, in this headspace of you know, I suck. The world sucks. Everyone sucks. All of this. That's why people try to commit suicide. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I, so for me, like I, I definitely had thoughts of not being here, but I never was suicidal. Like I never had a plan to commit suicide, but I I had a lot of days where I was just like, I don't want to be here because I feel like it's, you know, I'm not doing anything productive. I'm not going anywhere. And, and it was, and a part of that problem was the way that I spoke to myself, the inner critic that I had. So what I had to do to overcome this was I literally remember, I think I just got out a piece of paper and I wrote like, uh, like I wrote a line down the middle and I wrote on the one side, things that make me happy, things that like bring me joy. And then on the other side, here's all my problems. Here's all this stuff. And that, and I did that. And then I looked at that list and I'm like, there's so much more on the problem side. Like how, how do I get more things onto the happiness side? How I, how do I get more things onto the, I love my life side. So that's when I started to say, okay, well, I really like beat myself up a lot all the time. I'm super critical of myself. I'm super hard on myself. And that's when I really started to practice gratitude. So I literally started, you know, every single day, just recognizing your blessings, waking up and saying, you know, I'm happy that I'm alive. I'm happy that I have a home, that I have water, that I have friends, that I have family. Because once you start doing that, every single day you start, it starts to become easier. It starts to become easier to like, see these things that we have to see these things that we've accomplished, to see these things that we've experienced that are amazing instead of going to, Oh my God, this sucks. Like everything is terrible. You know, starting to rewire your thinking and your habits and your behaviors and your patterns. And that's what I started doing. So I started getting back into working out more consistently. I started taking better care of what I was eating instead of going to like McDonald's every single day. Like I would, I started going back to the produce section of the grocery store instead of, and it's been a while since I've been there. So I started taking care of my body, my mind, exercise, diet, and then also reading a lot more books on personal development and then just watching a lot more, you know, just different YouTube videos on how to kind of like, you know, get how to start your day, how to be more motivated, how to be more inspired, just to kind of raise that vibration from such a low place and it started to work, but it did take me like two years of doing this, like consistently to actually be able to wake up and say, wow, like I feel like a a different person now. So it's not like a super easy switch. You need to be committed to this. Like you need to be committed and actively like understanding that there is a way to have a better life, but you really need to make your mental health a priority. You need to make yourself, you know, you really need to take care of yourself. And then once you start to do that, then you'll start to feel better and like, and feel better physically, feel better mentally and start to have that better quality of life that you, that you feel like you probably never could have had. Well, you know, it's interesting what you're saying. If people don't realize that their brain is a muscle, and also, it's what you're training it to do. 
Now, by having, you know, you, you need to take custody of your thoughts, your mind, and your actions. And what people don't understand is that we can retrain our brain. It has what is known as plasticity. I think I said that right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. new, new cells grow, um, new directions the brain can take. Um, and, and the bottom line is what you did is instead of training your brain to be depressed and everything is dark and I don't want to get out of bed and have anxiety about what I have to do today and, oh, it's overwhelming and life sucks. And so when you keep telling yourself all that, your brain says, oh, okay, that's the way we should feel and that's what it does. Yes. You know, the brain is there to uh, please us, believe it or not. Even if it's negative or positive, it doesn't matter. So the bottom line is what I'm hearing you say is you retrained your brain and you retrained your lifestyle. Yes. But see, people 100%. think everything should be right away because addicts want everything immediately. Mm -hmm. And this is not an immediate. Look, if you're working out, if you work out one day a week, don't think you're going to all of a sudden have muscles and you're going to be in shape. Okay? <laughs> right. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. And what you created, Paris, or what my wife created and I created and, and Scott and all of us created is a new lifestyle and we have the power to do that but most people when they're in that that darkness okay they don't believe it's possible mm -hmm. and you know and the problem is is that they turn inward instead of outward and don't want to talk about what's going on and what they don't realize when you talk about what's going on you're releasing that stress so your brain starts clearing it up a lot and by by exercising you get rid of that stress and you raise your dopamine there's so many things that you just said is exactly how you get through this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like yeah. anything else in life. You know, if you have a cut, you take care of the cut. You don't just look at it and say, oh, it's going to get better. No, you put, you know, antibacterial stuff on it. You take, you put a, a Band-Aid on it. You make sure it's clean and eventually it heals. It doesn't heal in 10 seconds and neither, neither does our mind. So were you more depressed than manic? So actually, so when I was younger, so at 16, I was misdiagnosed with depression. And that was because I know, of course, with bipolar, you have the depression side and the manic side, right? So during that time, I was like from 16, probably to 18. So like 16, 17, 18, I was in like that depression, like mode a lot, every single day, you know, it was very, very hard for me to like, just get up. Like I, I was not a morning person. It took so much just to get me to want to do things. And I started to like lose interest in things that I love doing. Like I used to, you know, back in high school, I loved running cross country. I loved doing track. I loved, you know, being in these different groups and helping out with like charity events and stuff. And then I just, I just stopped going. I just like, I remember I just like, I just didn't want to go. I just wasn't interested. And it just, it be honest, it honestly became very hard for me to even have conversations with people because I just didn't know what to say anymore. I'm like, I don't even know what to like contribute to this conversation. I don't even feel like it just, everything became so overwhelming and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I remember sitting there and being like, why is this happening? I'm like, I literally, I'm like, remember thinking back to when I was younger and I was like, I used to be so happy, so full of energy. And now I'm just like crying all the time. Cry like literally, I remember I would like go home from school and just get home and just be crying, crying. And I'm like, why am I like, it was just so sad, like so hard for me to understand that. But then at 19 is when I was, I really started to like have like that whole manic episode. So like I went from that place of being super down, super depressed, like always sad, always crying, always just, and it, and it was because like what you said, you know, I was training my brain to be that way because I was always feeding it every single day. You know, you can't overcome these things. And of, and of course, a, one of the biggest parts of that for me was dealing with unresolved trauma, like talking about this, processing this, trying to move forward. And like the biggest thing for me was at 15 years old talking about, you know, being raped and having experienced sexual assault. That was like huge for me because I, I just, I'm like, I can't do it. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't talk about it. I can't say this. And part of that came from being like the shame, the guilt, like the embarrassment, like the, all of these feelings of, of feeling afraid and feeling scared and feeling like this was something that was like just terrible that I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't know how to move on from. So really being able to like deal with that, to talk about it, to like 
to really get through that was like huge. And I really, and I honestly feel like if I didn't do that, I would still be in a bad place because I didn't deal with what was going on or what happened. So yeah. So honestly, um, but the manic, the manic episodes, those were kind of like, I remember at the time being in college and then I was working two jobs. So I would, I would just have like just endless amounts of energy. I, w- I remember getting up at like five in the morning to go work room service. And then after that, I'd work from like five to two. Then I'd go be, then I'd go be a cashier from like four to like 10 or something. And then I, and I, I wasn't tired. I'm like, how am I not tired? And I, I would just keep going. And then I would go out all night and just drink or party or like be around people who really like did not have my best interest at heart and just like being around me because I was such like a wild and ridiculous person. Like it was like entertaining to watch, I think was the biggest part of that. So that was what that was like. And just honestly, just like going at like a hundred miles an hour, having racing thoughts, like just, just blowing all my money, like making such reckless decisions. Like I literally, like, I just didn't care. I was like, this is fun. And for me at the time, having it being in that manic episode felt fun to me because I spent so long in being in this like depression mode. I'm like, this is, and I thought, I thought that was happiness. I started to think, okay, like I'm finally happy again. Like I'm going out with people, like I'm meeting people, I'm drinking, I'm doing all these things. It's so fun. And it, and it was just making it worse, like really, really, really bad. And I was actually ended up just like being just this person that I never thought I would be. I was, I became very just bitter and mean and like, just really bad. So that's when I'm like, I need to, I need to fix this. Like I need to look at this and take this seriously instead of just being like, no, it's fine. Like, and then using being bipolar as an excuse, like telling people, you know, okay, well, you know, I act that way because I'm bipolar. Like that, no, like, you know, like that's, that's not, that's not an excuse, like take accountability for your actions and your behavior. And that's what I started to do. And once I started to do that, I was like, wow, wow, like I'm in control of my life. And I think that's the biggest thing that people don't realize when they're struggling is they feel so out of control. They feel so like so far removed from ever being able to control anything that it's like so overwhelming to even think about that. So once you can finally like realize, you know what, I'm responsible for where I go from this moment. Like I might not have been able to control being diagnosed bipolar, but I control, I can control where I go from here. I can control what I do tomorrow, what I do after this interview. Like I'm in charge, you know, I'm able to make those decisions. And once we're, we'll become aware of that, it just becomes easier to work on that, to manage that, to like do all these things. So I think it honestly, like what John was saying, the biggest part of it is the mindset piece, really, really, really getting that right. And, you know, re retraining your brain if you have to. So it's possible. And once you, once you can start doing that, but the thing to remember is to be consistent, right? So don't just give up. So once you think, okay, like I'm good, you know, I rewired my brain, like I'm fine. And don't just go back to all the old things you used to do. Like you need to, you know, be consistent and continue to you know, take care of yourself and all these things. So, but it's, and it actually becomes fun, right? This isn't like a bad thing where we're like, oh my God, now every day I have to get up and like say all these things I'm grateful for. Like, oh, I don't want to do this. No, it starts to become fun because then your mood changes and you feel excited about being alive instead of, oh, like, why am I here? You know? So (laughs) it's interesting all the things you said and and there's so many similarities between yourself myself and my wife we all were molested mm-hmm. okay we all went through the manic state when when you get manic you, you know i used to love it because you know all these racing thoughts and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and you don't do hardly any of it you know yeah. and and when you get depressed you wish you were manic okay and i mean it just goes on and on and on what people don't understand is is that you need balance mm-hmm. you know and, and you need uh, consistency, like you say, it's not like you go to the gym for a week and now you're in shape. You know, you have to be consistent and everything is consistent. It's, it boils down to discipline and focus and how well do you want to be? 
You know, I always say that to people. Well, how well do you want to be? Well, how much effort do you want to put into your life? Not my life, your life. You know, and, you know, they usually go to poor me's. Oh, I don't think I can change. And no, well, if you don't think you can change, you're not going to change. And that's just the bottom line. You know, uh, can't is won't. Okay. And um, it, it takes work. And it's not easy when you can't pay your rent, when you're doing stupid things the night before, and you feel guilty and you feel ashamed. And then you walk around with this burden on your back and you go, this is never going to change. Well, you're right. If you keep saying that to yourself, it's never going to change. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it takes courage and it takes people like yourself and myself and Scott and my wife, because my wife goes out there talking about this also, that yes, you can change, but you have to be vigilant because this stuff can come creeping back into your life before you even know it, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you start learning um, the behaviors that start to change and you start noticing those red flags, you can pull it back. But if you let it go too long, it'll suck you right in. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and uh, that's what people don't understand. Same thing with, you know, they keep saying addiction and mental health. They, nah, it's all the same stuff. There's people that are out of balance that are str struggling with life challenges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, oh, and, no, and that's what we're you. all about. And, and that's what, what people think is so difficult. It's only difficult if you make it difficult. Yes. Mm -hmm. we, all oh, yeah. through us, we all have our own shit, man, everybody. You know, we all have people dying in our life, losing jobs, not being able to pay the rent. You know, I was homeless. I lived in my karate school in my dressing room. I lived in a one room after I got divorced. I had no money. And my kids used to come, used to cry. I thought my life was over. And I realized that I didn't at the time, but it was just beginning. And once you make that, that understanding and that transition that, you know what? I believe I can change. I don't think I could change. I know I can change, but I have to do the work. And, you know, you were saying about it's in the beginning, it seems like an overwhelming job to get well and stay well. After a while, it, you don't even notice that you're doing what you're doing because you're just doing what you always do now. Mm -hmm. You know, changing your diet, working out, looking at your gut issues, and taking care of yourself. And, and one of the things we're not talking about is, is spirituality. And that doesn't mean religion. Okay, that means getting a higher power, uh, whatever that is to you. Mine was G.O.D., good orderly direction. And God knows I needed that, you know, between the mental health issues and the drug addiction. Uh, it, it was a nightmare that I thought would never end. And, you know, look, we had, you know, I have kids and, and they were going through their addiction stuff and their mental health issues. Um, I, I said to myself, what did I do to deserve this? You know, um, what I didn't realize that a lot of people go through this. And thank God I'm clean 36 years now and no longer suffering from the craziness. Well, I'm crazy, not all the time. <laughs> but, you know, and uh, I help my children. I help myself. And I believe I help other people, just like you do, Paris. And to be a young lady, as you are, and being so bright, and, and like, to me, you're a shining star. Aw, thank you. <laughs> well, it's the truth. And, and, and the bottom line is, is that it's very courageous of you to get out and talk about stuff that a lot of kids your age don't talk about. Oh, you know, yeah. They want to they yeah. fit in. They want to be, you know, liked and, and things like that. They don't want to look at it as broken. Mm -hmm. We're not broken, okay? And, and the bottom line is, is that the more you talk about this stuff, the more the stress gets out of your body, the more the stress gets out of your body, the less depression you have. Yes. That's just my yes. take on it. I love that. I love that so much. This has been like such an awesome conversation so far. I think we've, we've literally gotten into so many important points like related to stigma related to treatment related to recovery and just and also related to struggling right and like being in that struggle and like what does this look like like what does it look like to go through periods of depression what does it look like to go through periods of being manic and how does addiction tie into that because i definitely think you know looking back at my life i did not take care of myself when i was at my worst you know when i was at my lowest moments i was not um doing that because i did 
in a way really give up on myself, you know, and I, and I really agree with you guys, like whatever you feed your mind becomes reality. So if you sit there every single day and it can, and then days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months then it's years. And if you continuously are in this cycle of, I'm not good enough. Like, I can't do that. I'm bad at that. I'm going to fail. Like just, and that's what I was doing. So I had to flip that script from, I can't, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not like, I'm never going to be able to like accomplish this into telling yourself, no, like, no, you can, you can, there's steps you need to take to get there. So let's figure out what that is you know, let's put together a plan and let's be dedicated. Let's be disciplined. Let's be determined into making this happen. Because for me, what I really want to do is just honestly be able to continue working towards eliminating stigma once and for all related to anything mental health. So that way, honestly, like talking about mental health will be as easy as talking about the weather. Like when you get into an elevator with someone and you don't know them, it's like, oh, hi, like it's sunny out today. It's, it's nice out today. You know, you can get in that elevator and be like, wow, you know, like I have anxiety or I have, you know, it's going to be nothing like a piece of cake to like get into these conversations. And I think honestly, like if there was not a stigma, then that would be a huge, like a huge step towards making these conversations easier, making these conversations more possible for people who, you know, that's their reason. That's their reason for not getting into this is because of that stigma is because of, you know, what is the world going to think of me? What is my family going to think of me? What are my friends going to think of me if I tell them that I'm, and even if you don't have a diagnosis, even if you just are not like you're feeling a certain way, but you don't know what it is. You don't know what's going on. You don't want to express that, you know, just letting, making this more possible for people because I think, you know, if this was more, if this was eliminated, then I think we would see a lot less issues like all over the place. You know, when you look at, you know, like the criminal justice system, pe people going in and out of jails, in and out of prisons, in and out of treatment centers and hospitals. Cause I remember being 19 years old and sitting in my hospital on the floor of my hospital. And I was, I talked to everybody on my floor and I was blown away because my thought process at the time was, okay, like I'm in the hospital. This is great. You know, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be recovered and I'm going to be back on track with my life. And that is not the way it works because I wasn't, first of all, I wasn't taking it seriously. And second of all, like I, I just, and, and I remember talking to people in the hospital and them telling me, you know, well, I've been hospitalized 19 times. I've been hospitalized seven times, 10 times. And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, why is this like, it seems like a revolving door almost like they, they go out, they come back, they go out, they come back. I'm like, we have to fix. There's something, something needs to be fixed. I don't know. Like, and I'm like, I know there's so many components because when you really break it down, like it comes down to the person, like the person who is getting the treatment, like, do they really want it? Are they really there? Like, or, or did someone else like put them there? Were they involuntarily put there? Because of course, you know, when someone is like, just picked off the street and thrown in somewhere, they're probably not going to be like, all right, I'm going to take this serious. And I'm going to like, I'm going to do this. Like so, they're, sometimes they're very upset and very mad about literally just being thrown into a facility. And, you know, and of course there's a huge part of it too, that I noticed like being in the hospital, like you are kind of almost looked at almost like a broken person, right? Like we're like, you're kind of this like, at least in my experience, you know, being in the hospital, like being around the people working in there, it wasn't, it was not good because I felt like, you know, I'm just being looked at as like, she's out of control. Like this girl is crazy. Like she's never going to do anything in her life. Like none of these people are. So let's just get them, you know, to some kind of level of stability where we can get them out of here and have an empty bed for someone else. So I was like, that's what needs to change. But also when you talk about the employee side of it, I feel like a lot of people working in these jobs don't feel valued. They don't feel like they matter. They don't feel like they're important. And that results in how they treat some of the patients, right? So there's a lot that needs to be I think fixed, but I think we're, we're, we're doing a good job of having more of these conversations and bringing more awareness of this out there because some people don't know anything, you know, about bipolar or, you know, mental health stuff. They don't, they, they, maybe they've never been exposed to it. Maybe they don't 
really think it matters or maybe, you know, I don't know, everyone's different, but the more we, we work towards educating people on this and bringing more awareness, then more people will understand it and it'll, and it'll get better. So, yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, what's interesting is, is that I, I was uh, at one of the universities, I was teaching group therapy and I had a bunch of mental health people in there, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, LCSWs, MSWs, all kinds of Ws. <laughs> anyway, we were sitting in group and we had a, like a mock group. And uh, one of the, the women said, I don't understand why people are addicted. Why don't they just stop? You know, uh, you know, if you're depressed, why don't you just get out and do something? You know, so I said, that's an interesting thing. I says, how many people smoke? And a few of them smoked in the group. I says, okay, how many people drink coffee every day, they raise their hand. I says, okay, I want you all to stop smoking and quit coffee for a month. They all got like bent out of shape. They go, oh, what do you mean? Why do I have to give up my, well, if you want to know what addiction is, if you want to know what depression is, you have to walk in those shoes. So look at the hard time, you're defending cigarettes, okay, which can cause lung cancer, it says it right on the pack, but you want to defend that. So what do you think addicts are doing? Okay, because we always look at a Medicaid and you're medicating also just a different way. You know, what people don't understand is most people have low self-esteem, believe it or not. Even the guys, I deal with a lot of people that are very wealthy and I deal with people that are very poor. Okay, same stuff. Okay, just different outfit. I'll put it that way. Okay, yeah. and, and, and the bottom line is, is whether you have money, you don't have money, whatever the story is you still can be depressed. You still can feel lonely. You still can feel, you know, like you don't want to talk about it because especially the people that are successful, I'm successful. I'm not supposed to be depressed. I'm not supposed to have this kind of bullshit. Okay. You're a human being, you know, we all have this childhood traumas. We all have all this stuff that we don't talk about me. The difficulty with me was I, I was this big tough karate guy. I'm not supposed to be like that. I never told you I was insecure. When I, even when I won championships, I figured, I said to myself, ah, I really wasn't good enough. They just did it because maybe they liked me or the competition wasn't that good. I, I, I kept putting myself down regardless of how successful or not successful I was. It was the same thing. And what people need to understand that you're training your brain to think this way. You, you really are. So you got to train your brain to think differently. Yeah, you can't pay your rent. Okay, you can't pay rent. Okay, so you, you lose your house, you lose your house. Uh, you, you have to, you know, you have to be homeless. You have, you'll figure it out. As long, as long as you're alive, you'll figure it out. But if you keep, like when you say walking into the hospitals, I've worked in those hospitals, mm -hmm. okay? And what they do is they throw medication at you to keep you quiet. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know exactly what they're doing because they don't want to hassle with the clients, okay? Mm -hmm. They only want to deal with the ones that are conforming to what they want them to do. Well, that's yeah. not why they're there. Mm -hmm. If they're conforming, they don't belong there. Yeah. And it just, I would remember, it, it would make me so sad because I remember the, so the, where you go before they put you into the hospital. So there's an urgent psychiatric center where they take you to. And that's where they like determine, okay, does this person need to go to a hospital or can they just go home? And I remember literally being, I've never been like as terrified in my life from, from being in that place. Like I, I remember seeing people just literally attack each other, just blood everywhere. And I've never, I've never seen that before. I've never seen people do that. So I just, I, I had a hard time like calming down. I'm like, I can't just, and I remember the people working there were like, well, sit down, just like sit down. And I'm like, I, you want me to sit next to somebody who just like literally beat the shit out of somebody and there's blood on the floor and you want me to like, and I'm like, I just couldn't do it. And I remember wa watching all this stuff happen. I remember a woman like in the middle of the night, she just gets up, walks around and starts screaming, just starts screaming. And I, I thought that she was being killed. I didn't know what was going on. Just screaming, screaming, screaming. And then that morning they let her go home. And I remember sitting there and just being like, is that what I need to do to like, get out of here? Do I need to like, just get up and just start yelling and just be out of control? Cause I'm like, my thought process was like, wow, you know, when you see someone like that, you would think this person needs to be here. This person needs help. Not okay. Get rid of them. Cause 
she's too loud. Like just, just like send her home. And well, that's the, what, yeah, it was sad. Yeah, the insurance companies run the treatment centers and oh, hospitals. Yeah. And, and that's what the story is. So, you know, it's like, we were talking about this earlier with uh, Karen, my other partner, and Scott's partner. And, um, uh, it's 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 pretty wild when you start to think about they got to get people in and out in and out in and out uh they have so many regulations and the insurance company tells you how long a person can stay in mm -hmm. yeah. okay when they could leave and it doesn't matter if you're okay yeah. uh, if the insurance runs out you got to run out mm -hmm. you know and they keep on recycling people you know and uh that's why it doesn't work so and then what happens is they set up a, a paradigm of where the treatment centers start to get crooked to get their money. The insurance companies start to get crooked in a way to not to pay the money. Mm -hmm. And they put people on audits. They do all kinds of crazy stuff to stop the cash flows. And they tell you how long they can stay in treatment. How, how do you do treatment with somebody, okay, that, uh, that you can't even treat properly? So that's what happens. Uh, you go into a, into a mental institution, they throw pills on you. They want you to walk around like a zombie. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, you come out and you're like partial zombie. As soon as the medication wears off, yeah. you're back to being you again. It was crazy sad because that it was crazy because that was my experience. I remember I actually remember um, being on a medication and I remember they gave you a paper that says like what the medication is. And I remember sitting there reading it. And I remember like all of these things, like potential side effects or what it causes and heart murmurs were on there. And I already have a heart murmur, right? So I'm like, and I'm like, why am I taking this? And I remember like, they would just give you medications. And if you say no, that's bad. Like you can't, basically you can't decline or else like then there, then there's an issue, right? So I was taking all these medications and I remember it was so sad because my dad and he would come visit me every single day, every single day. He would drive like an hour from where we lived to come see me. And he would bring like pizza for everybody. And like, and like the people working there would be like, well, you can't give that out because you don't know if they can eat that. And it can only be, and I remember it was cause he would look at me and I would, I, I would just be shaking. Like I would have these murmurs were like my hand and I, and I was so paranoid the entire time. Like all, all our visits, the whole time was just me being like, I have to take these med like I have to take these pills or they're going to like do all these things. And I, I couldn't even walk straight. Like that's how bad it was because I was trying to walk and I just, I have to keep bending over because my stuff, like everything was just like, it was so bad. And I'm like this, I'm like, how is this like treatment? I was like thinking, I'm like, how no, is this, this is traumatizing? People. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I was. And that's, and I remember like, so to get out of the place, right. There was a, there was a hearing cause I was court ordered um, for a year. Right. So I was in my hearing to go home. And I remember the judge saying, she was like, well, I see here that one of the days you refused a medication. And that was the day that I finally told them, I'm like, I can't take this medication. Cause I, I had a panic attack and like my hand, I couldn't open my hands. I couldn't walk straight. And I'm like, I'm not going to take this one. I'll take my other ones. And then the judge told me, you understand, like, you can't do that right? Like you can't decline. And I, and I literally sat there and I'm like, I need to just say yes. I need to just agree with her or else I'm not, I might not get to leave. So I was like, yeah, I'm like, I agree. I agree. I agree. And it was just so sad because I'm like, what would have happened if I said no? Like what would have happened if I was like, like, what would they like send me back in there? Would they make me? And I'm like, this is just, and I, I remember just sit, going home and being like, that is not at all what I would have thought mental health treatment is like being like hospitalized for like psychosis. I'm like, I would have thought, you know, there would have been like more care, like more, you know, empathy instead of like, cause I, we were basically treated like animals. Like it was, it was wild to me. I was like, this is so weird. I was like, well, I was it's, every day. It's, it's, it's like you say, look, and, and here's the problem. Problem is, is that we keep treating symptoms. We're not yeah. treating what's driving the symptoms. And that style of medicine doesn't work. It's, it's, there's a 5 to 8% recovery rate in addiction and in mental health, okay? And then people say, well, they, they stopped taking their medication. Well, you know what? You know, sometimes the medication causes more problems than the disease you're trying to treat. Now, I'm not saying don't take medication, so I want to make everybody out there know that. But what I am saying is if you feel like something's going on and not right with you, 
you got to sit down with that doctor and say, listen, this is the experiences I'm having, you know, and don't use it as a, a way of manipulating not to take it because only hurting yourself. But I think you, you're so right when you talk about only treating the symptoms, because I remember like every single day in the hospital, the doctor would come around and do checks with everyone. So she'd have her notebook and she would say, okay, did you eat today? Did you go to group? Did you take your medications? Did you sleep? And all these, all this stuff. Right. So I would, I would answer her questions. And then I remember one day I just looked at her and I was like, aren't you going to ask me like, what my goals are when I leave, like, like, what am I in school? Am I working on anything? Like anything about me as a person? Or is it just, did you take your pills? Did you sleep? Did you go to group? Okay, next, next. And I, and then she looked at me and she was like, no, like, I'm not going to ask you that. And she's like, well, you just need to do focus on this. No. And I was, and I just was like, so blown away. I was just like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, this is, I'm like, this is not, treatment this is i'm like this is why people leave hospitals and leave you know these treatment centers and go out and kill people and kill themselves because they're not ever going to get close to a solution because they're being treated as you know this you're just a money making machine we're going to make money off you from your insurance and then get you out do it again do it again like we're not helping these people like they're leaving and it's getting worse you know because you're on all these medications and you go home and then you're coming off this and now you're on your new medication. And it's like, like well, a lot of that? people don't know. Okay. Yeah. That these SSRIs, these medications, you know, and all this different medications they have, they're, they're only used for short-term interventions. Okay. Now people, the pharmaceutical companies, wow, we can make money. We can keep them on this. Okay. Yeah. So we're walking cash registers for these people. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if you take, if you need to take medication, okay. But meanwhile, you got to look for solutions so you can eventually, if possible, to wean off of these medications. Now, you may not be able to, okay? Like my wife, uh, she has a kid, you know, believe it or not, because the medication she received, she lost her kidneys. Oh, and what wow. I mean by that, she's got a kidney transplant. What happened was wow. the doctors put her on lithium. And they were oh. only checking the lithium levels. They were not checking the cre creatinine levels for the kidney. Well, that scares me now because that's what I'm still on. That scares well, me. Well, that's I got scary. news for you. If they do not, if you do not check your creatinine levels, lithium damages kidneys. Oh See, my gosh. And yeah. most doctors, they don't even tell you that. They check, they check lithium the levels. Yeah. They don't check your kidneys. Mm -hmm. Okay. So oh that's what happened to her. And now, you know, she has a kidney transplant as a direct result of wow. lithium. How long was she on lithium for before she had the kidney transplant? Well, she's got the same story you have. Wow. You know, now she's that's... 60. She's going to be 62 and she looks fantastic. But <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. our daughter oh gave her the kidney. Oh, so her daughter, but... she gave her daughter life and our daughter gave her back her life. Oh my gosh. I the love Channel that. Channel 10 did a whole story what? on it. It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and wow. you know, my wife's great now, but she can't get off her medications because every time we try to titrate her off, she's been on them so long, the brain just got kind of so accustomed to these medications. Yeah. That wow. couldn't do anything is she about still, it. Is she still on lithium or a different? What? Is she still taking lithium or no? No, no. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely that's, not. that's crazy. Cause I've, so for me, like when I left the hospital, I was on lithium and I'm, tw I'm 25 now. So, and I've been taking it since then, you know, and I haven't had issues with it, but no, you're not going to feel that, you know, you're not going to have scary. issues. You that's see, scary. that's the problem. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that. Well, mm. you go check with your doctor, your creatinine levels for your kidneys. Yeah. But the thing about it is I'm, I'm not on, like, I remember when I left the dose I was on, I think it was like, yeah, they give you a high dose and then you yeah. titrate it down to a yeah. regular. So it was like, I think it was, yeah, I think it was like 900 milligrams or 800. Now I'm on, it's 150 milligrams. Well, they have lithium orotate. It's not as strong as regular lithium, but it's safe. Okay. Yeah. So you might want to look so, at lithium orotate. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Make sure they look at your kidneys. Or you'll oh, lose yeah. Your kidneys. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I think I remember, yeah. Cause I know they would check, they check the blood levels, but the lithium levels and I know, yeah, but it's like the create, what is it called? The create, creatine? 
creatinine. creatinine. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, That's obviously, important. obviously, we're just we're not medical experts. Don't uh, you know, know check with your doctor, talk with your doctor. We don't, we're not dispensing any medical advice right. or medication advice on this show. Uh, that's not what we do. Uh, but you know, there's always you should always ask questions and find out what's going on. And if you hear something out there, talk to your doctor about it. And if your doctor doesn't want to talk to you, then look for another doctor. That's yeah. probably the best piece of advice. Right, yeah, John? well, that's that's what I was saying. Have your doc, you know, have yeah. your doctor check your 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 creatinine levels, okay? And you can tell them the story with my wife. You know, oh, she yeah. was on lithium for twenty years. Twenty years, wow, wow, that's you know. Uh, yeah. So you, you gotta you gotta you know. Sometimes you have to be your own physician, but not diagnosing you know, treating yourself. But you gotta yeah. look at all the possibilities of what can happen with some of these medications. And then talk oh, wow. to the physician about it. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with you. That's so important. So important. Well, listen, uh, time has flown by. Um, <laughs> and it seems like we've gotten partway through the conversation. And maybe we can schedule another one show. Because I think there's a whole conversation to be had about the other side, which is the recovery. Yes. And uh, the better side where you where you know, maybe you discover uh, the light that you never saw when you were in the darkness and, and how that feels when you're stepping into that. Um, I think there's a whole conversation that should be had on that. So maybe we'll do this again, Paris. Yes, I would love that. I would love to get into that topic with you guys. This has been great. It's always fun talking to you guys and Absolutely, getting to Paris, reconnect. And yeah, and even Scott, yes, I took your course, the ATC course. I loved it. Amazing. Excellent. I, and uh, I don't know where your uh, your thing went out, but if you did not receive, we'll send another one. We'll send yeah, another one. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> Florida mail is probably, I mean, as much as we love the state of Florida, John and I will agree the Florida mail system is one of the worst in the country. Oh and my gosh. Uh, whether you're getting packages or sending them, it's always a crapshoot whether they actually arrive. So we'll, we'll do that again, Paris. <laughs> yeah, um, awesome. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the course and, and everything. And everybody, don't forget, leave a comment. Yes. Check us out. Help us to, to keep pushing this, okay? That's right. Like us and subscribe. And uh, and everyone, please check out Crooked Illness Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Facebook, Instagram. Um, it's really everywhere. And Paris, you do a great job with the show. Hats Absolutely. off to you. Um, Thank you. If more people were just open and honest about their own experiences, uh, that's the first step in getting rid of stigma is for people who have been through it to open up about it. Uh, yes. People who are in, deep in it aren't going to be the ones to make the change. It's people like you who step forward and, and are proud of the journey they've had. And we appreciate that. Awesome. You well, know, I, you. I, have an, I have an idea of something I like to do maybe uh, in the future. I get my wife on with you, Paris, and you yes. talk about this. Oh, I would love that. That would be such a good episode. I think that would episode. be a great show. Yes. We should do that. Yeah. All right. All right. I love that. Paris, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Again, it is our special guest, Paris Prinkevich. Prinkevich, you got it. You got it. Prinkevich from Crooked Illness Podcast. As always, uh, Scott Jones and your host, John Giordano. I want to thank everybody for joining us and tuning in. And uh, make sure you stick around and catch us next time on one of our other shows. Absolutely. Don't forget to like us. All right. We'll catch you yes. next time. Okay.